guess, share something here at Sunday School for our talk today. It's somewhat related to the topic that we've been discussing, church history. And the specific uh, portion today are, is the Puritans. Who are the Puritans, particularly the Puritans as pastors, and what are their strengths and weaknesses? And this was part of my um, essay in my church history course that I had to write. So it would be a great pleasure to share this with you. But before I start, why don't you join me in a word of prayer. Almighty God, one who is abounding in steadfast love, even loving kindness towards us. Lord, we thank you that your word is sure. Your word is powerful. And your word is the one, Lord, who goes deep down in our hearts. That even our own sins may be exposed so that, Lord, we would flee to you. Help us, Lord, even now as we learn about these Puritans. These people, Lord, whom you have saved and whom you have used for your glory to build up your church. May even our minds be engaged and be informed, and yet, Lord, our hearts affected so that we would be um, just marveling at your work throughout history. May you be with us even now. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Puritans. When the word Puritans is mentioned to you, what comes to mind? Strangely enough, I was walking at Shoppers one day, and I saw this can of soup that said Puritan, I'm like, maybe I should try that one day. Maybe increase my holiness, but I might. <laughs> Never mind, but the word Puritans, maybe you've not, not heard the word Puritans before, maybe you've had. But for someone, they said Puritans meant that haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. So we're given these portraits of these Puritans as people who are what? Just gloomy and dull. They were just strict legalistic, religious, moralists, and they hated what? Sports, they hated recreation, they hated fun, they hated arts. These Puritans were intolerant against people who hated them. They indulged in self-loathing too much. But these stereotypes have actually been discussed. I point you to Leland Riken's book, Worldly Saints, where he's addressed these caricatures, these stereotypes of the Puritans. But remember that portrait of them being gloomy and dull, just wearing black and sour? Listen to what this historian said, Anthony Wood, describing John Owen, a vice chancellor at Oxford University. So comparable, probably like a, a president or chief executive here at a university. Just imagine John Owen walking the hall of Oxford University with hair powdered, cambric band with large costly band strings, a velvet jacket, breeches set around at knees with ribbons pointed, Spanish leather boots with cambric tops. I don't know if that's pointing to being fashionable or anything, but they're far from being dark and gloomy. They're filled with joy because they know who the Lord is. But with the vast array of resources that we have in the Puritans, many, 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 many books, many resources written about the Puritans. Our focus today will be on the Puritans as pastors. What were their strengths and what were their weaknesses? Areas they excelled in and maybe some of the things that are areas of concern or areas of weakness. 
But first, I'll try to lay out some definitions or parameters when I talk about the Puritans. Again, who were the Puritans? What is the general timeline that we're talking about when we talk about the Puritans? The key geographic locations, what they believed in, and what they did. So this will give us some working background to our topic today. So for starters, to give a definition of the Puritans or Puritanism is not as clear-cut as you might think. It's historians actually have a hard time defining what Puritans is or what Puritanism and all it entails. Like, when did it actually start? Did it start when Queen Elizabeth enacted the Elizabethan settlement in 1559? Did it end in 1662 with the enactment of Act of Uniformity? It's the state sanctioned that the, all the churches need to follow the Book of Common Prayer, where in that year when it was enacted, 2,000 ministers were ejected from Church of England. Who are the people that is involved in this group called Puritans? Shall we include William Tyndale? He's an English reformer. Or do we go all the way to Jonathan Edwards, all the way to Charles Spurgeon? Where were the Puritans situated? Were they just in England? Or do we include also those who traveled to New England? So the word Puritan wasn't actually a positive commendation to those spiritual giants that we think of now. Actually, the word Puritan is a term of abuse, a pejorative, an insult to those who might be overly strict or severe. But again, let's try to figure out what was the context of the Puritans back in the day, in their day. So this is my attempt, a very humble attempt, because there are lots of uh, um, resources about this, and there's really no, no, no congruency, no, 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 I guess, um, monolithic um, agreement on what was the story like, because there are lots of aspects and perspectives to consider. So this is my attempt of a brief survey of the history of the Puritans, the context that they lived in, and what was their shared, most shared convictions and distinction that describe them with the name Puritans. So these will be just snippets, just snapshots during the time of the Puritans that are just relevant to our class today. At the very baseline, and this is what's helpful for me trying to understand what Puritanism is, it is a movement, not an institution, but a movement, a spiritual movement that had its beginning in England. So Puritanism is typically recognized, again, during the time of Queen Elizabeth I, reign in the 16th century, starting in 1558. So the Puritan movement was part, of the was part of the Protestant Reformation in England, and they sought for the reformation of individual lives. They sought reformation in the Church of England, and they sought reformation in the rest of society. So here's a definition, quote, Puritanism is the name we give to a distinctive and particularly intense variety of early modern Reformed Protestantism, which originated within the unique context of the Church of England, but spilled out beyond it, branching off into divergent dissenting streams and overflowing to other lands and foreign churches. So this is a, like a particular uh, stream or a brand name of Reformed Protestantism. One historian actually would call the Puritans a hotter sort of Protestants. Another noted that Puritanism is a rigorous Calvinism. The Puritans were indeed the heirs of the Reformation, 
the Reformation that Martin Luther ignited in Germany in 1517. The Reformation was by and large about recovering the gospel. How can a person be justified before God? And in the early, early 16th century, this Reformation movement scattered throughout Europe and eventually reached England. So again, to have a better understanding of the Puritans and their context, let's backtrack from Elizabeth's reign in 1558 to her father's reign, King Henry VIII, back in 1509. You see, Henry VIII, his, her father, excuse me, wanted to break away from the Church of Rome, but not because of Roman Catholicism, not because of their theology, but because he wanted to legally divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, because she had not borne him a son to be his heir. So, for Henry, to divorce his wife meant he needed to get the Pope's approval. But at that time, Church of England was under the rule of the Pope, under the rule of the papacy. And through a series of events, including the Act of Supremacy was established in 1534, the Church of England finally broke away from Church of Rome and from the Pope, and King Henry VIII became the supreme head of the Church of England. So, Church of England is broke away, now King Henry is the head. So, though the Church of England is no longer under the rule of, of under, excuse me, uh, Roman Catholic rule, Henry VIII did little to change the Church of England's doctrine. So, there's still remnants of Roman Catholicism. They still retain some sort of hierarchical church government and medieval-style liturgy. They like the formality of church worship. So in between King Henry's reign and his daughter Elizabeth's reign was another season of reformation by his son Edward VI, who was Henry's son, born by, uh, excuse, yeah, Henry's son, born by Henry's third wife, Jane Seymour. And Edward VI grew up being taught Protestant doctrines, being taught Protestant doctrines. So Edward's Reformation efforts was there, but it was cutly, it was abruptly halted because of his sickness. Some said he got tuberculosis, but he eventually died, and he was succeeded by Mary Tudor, who was Henry's daughter, with his then wife, Catherine. Are you keeping up? <laughs> I tried to keep this in my head. But side note, there's a really fascinating story between Henry VI and Mary Tudor's um, reign with his lady named Lady Jane Grey was a nine-day queen. And if you got time, read a biography of her. Very, very fascinating of this nine-day queen, Lady Jane Grey. But back to Edward's reign. Some of the reformation that took place during his reign was that the continental Protestants moved to England and had influence with English Protestantism. So that's how the, the, the Protestant doctrine or reform doctrine started penetrating England. It was legal for the clergy to get married and most of all, in the public worship is when Reformation was, was Edward's Reformation started happening. There was widespread removal of images of saints in the churches. And the Book of Common Prayer was, was published. So that meant English was the official language of the worship. The laity were permitted to take communion. And there was a reform view of the, the Eucharist. But after six years of reigning, Edward died and was succeeded by his sister, Mary I or Mary Tudor, or some of you might know, Bloody Mary. Mary was the daughter of King Henry VIII with his then wife, Catherine. 
but Mary was a staunch Roman Catholic. She was very adamant in bringing back the Church of England under the Roman Catholic Church, under the papacy's authority. She reinstated the Latin Mass again, and her reign caused many English Protestants to flee to the continent, to flee to Germany, to Switzerland, while others remained. But sadly, for those who remained, they were arrested, they were tried for heresy, and in the end, upwards of 300 English Protestants were persecuted and burnt at the stake, including names such as Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, Hugh Latimer. But Mary eventually died, and she was succeeded by Elizabeth. Now we are, we are here at Elizabeth I. Elizabeth was a daughter of Henry VIII again by his second wife, Anne Boleyn. Elizabeth was also a Protestant, and her first order of business was to restore the English Protestants in positions of leadership in the Anglican Church. So after she tried to restore some kind of unity within England by this act called Elizabethan Settlement, this Elizabethan settlement was essentially a compromise. It was a compromised combination of Calvinistic doctrines with Roman Catholic forms of worship and an Episcopalian government. So she wanted everything so that, I guess, everybody would love her. She, would, she wanted to maintain control. She wanted to maintain peace. She wanted to maintain unity. So she had everything. So she wanted to establish peace and control by granting reformed doctrine in the Church of England, again, while retaining some form of Roman Catholic worship, and including the clergy had to wear vestments, this, this attire that they had to wear. But the English Protestants were not satisfied with her halfway reformation and insisted that a full reformation should take place. And they believed the church needed further reformation. And in a sense, they wanted the church to be purified Hence the label, Puritans. The, pur the word Puritans was applied to these English Protestants who were seeking a full reformation in the church. So with that whirlwind tour of snapshots of this English history during this time, I'll stop right there. But just wanted to highlight some of the other things that happened during, these er during the Puritan era. The King James Version of the Bible was published. The Westminster Confession was drafted and finalized. And English Protestants um, fled from England and traveled to New England. So I hope that's, that's enough to paint you an adequate snapshot of the historical context that, that built up to the start of the Puritans. But for this class, we will consider the Puritans during the, during the um, 16th century to the 17th century, and including both England and New England. But before we consider the strengths and weaknesses of the Puritans as pastors, because there were other Puritans who were not pastors, and there were men and women who were considered as Puritans, but let me just take this time to, to summarize what were their most shared conviction? What was the distinction that characterized, characterized them with the name Puritans? Again, remember, at the core, Puritanism was a spiritual movement. They were in pursuit of God's glory through the proclamation of God's word for the purpose of evangelizing, converting sinners. They were really concerned about personal salvation. Everyone was asking, how might I be saved? That was the question in their forefront. They were, they were concerned about reforming church and worship, biblical church leadership and worship, emphasis on the word ministry. 
They sought cultivating a life of godliness, a personal communion with God, and last, a, a fostering of righteousness in all areas of life. And to put it another way, hopefully more succinctly, they sought reformation in all of life. Reformation of lost sinners, reformation of the spiritual life of the believer, reformation of church and worship, and reformation of society. That was at the core of Puritanism. Though not all who were part of this movement have a complete agreement in all doctrines and practices, it is a, a spectrum. From one end, we have Anglicans, Separatists, Independents, Presbyterians, we have Baptists. We have spectrum also who believe in, in the whole full doctrines of, of Calvinism or Calvinists. Some were actually called Dortian Calvinists, those who adopted the canons in Synod of Dort. You're familiar with it, maybe, the tulip, total depravity and conditional election. Some were moderate Calvinists. And there was a few who were Arminians that were considered. So there is a spectrum of the Puritans, but they did follow a shared conviction that gave them these distinctive characteristics. Their doctrine was primarily Calvinistic. Okay? And that means they believe and taught the sovereignty of God in salvation by God's elect people through faith in Jesus Christ. They believe that sinner is saved by God's free grace alone by believing in Christ alone in his perfect righteousness and perfect sacrifice. They held to a high view of the scriptures. To them, the Bible is authoritative and sufficient. The Bible is the means God instructs and governs his people. So they believe every people should have access to the Bible and be able to also understand it. The Puritans also focused on reforming or purifying the English church by removing any remaining Roman Catholic practices, such as the clergy wearing vestitures, their attires, performing ceremonies, or even the hierarchy in the church government. And lastly, the Puritans were well known for their own personal piety. Because of their mature holiness and seasoned fortitude, they were considered as spiritual giants. Piety to the Puritans meant experiential or experimental it was a daily communion with God through his word. So overall, the Puritans were stalwarts of the Christian faith. Yet, they were imperfect believers growing in holiness who waited to see God's glory, God in glory. So having gone through these, these core commonalities the Puritans shared, let's now consider them as pastors. Again, focus is what were their strengths as pastors and what were their weaknesses Two areas of strength is preaching and pastoral care, and two areas of weakness, something about their sermon and their methodology. First and foremost, again, the strength of the Puritan, their forte, the area they shined in amongst other things was preaching. The Puritans described their work as ministers of God, and their primary ministry is preaching. What they believe about preaching include their high view of the scriptures, plain speaking of the message, a deep confidence in the Holy Spirit to work through their preaching, and living holy lives consistent with what they preach. William Perkins, a well-known Puritan, described the nature of scripture as perfect, sufficient, pure, inerrant, eternal, and unchanging. So for the Puritans, preaching entailed reading the text, expounding what that text means in view of the whole scriptures, teaching doctrines, 
shaped by the text, then applying it to the hearts of the congregation in straightforward, plain speech. Preaching for the Puritans is not a weekly routine that they check off their to-do list that, yes, I'm done. I've done my preaching for the week. They recognize that the eternal weight of this task because everlasting life and everlasting death of a person is on the line. So moreover, the Puritans recognized that what they preach is not some abstract body of exposition. Rather, the Puritans practice what they preach if the minister would have his doctrine believed. People would want to believe what he's preaching. It has to affect his own heart. So William Perkins pressed that God's minister must preach the word to himself first, even to his own conscience, so that he understands better how to preach to God's people. So the Puritan style of preaching, it is is very penetrating. It probes, very plain and precise and pointed. That's your P alliteration for today. Packer noted that Puritans preached the Bible systematically and thoroughly with sustained application to personal life. Head and heart are joined. The Puritans' goal was not only to inform the mind, but also to break open the person's conscience to the extent that a person examines himself or herself as God would. And because of this self-examination through God's word, they're impelled to go to Christ. They're impelled to come to Christ. So, so furthermore, the Puritans preach in such a way to affect the heart. They wanted to cultivate within the hearer a right response to the exhortation. They knew, the Puritans knew in and of themselves they could not manipulate results or reactions because they believed that reformation and transformation of the heart is through the work of the Holy Spirit and even through the preaching of God's word. One of the key features of Puritan preaching is their specific applications or uses of scripture doctrines. If you pick up any Puritan sermons, you'll see that they break it down in uses. So William Perkins also listed helpful categories when a preacher um, tries, to, t- tries to formulate specific applications of the scripture according to their type of spiritual conditions because there's different ears in the pews and there's different um, um, people and how they hear God's word. There's different maturity levels, and there's different stages of life as well. So the Puritans' capabilities to recognize and speak into these different listeners enabled them to not only be effective in their preaching, but also in caring for their own congregation. The Puritans, as pastors, truly had a genuine interest in the personal piety and growth of the flock under their care. This is, this is demonstrated in their various strategies. So they conducted private conferences, personal visits, uh, individual catechism, and dealing with cases with, of conscience. And th- these means bolstered the minister's work to the extent that it enabled him to know his flock better and care for them and preach to them more effectively. Joel Beakey, who's one of the most foremost uh, Puritan theologians, noted that the Puritans believe that the pulpit messages should be reinforced by personalized ministry through catechesis. So it is a a question and answer form of teaching. In essence, preaching and personal discipleship were integral responsibilities for the Puritans as pastors. For example, Richard Baxter emphasized taking heed 
to all the flock. Baxter noted that pastors should endeavor to know his in congregation individually, especially their spiritual condition, their, their propensities, their bent, their neglected duties, their sins, their temptations. Baxter would actually devote two days a week, along with assistance, to teach and instruct individuals of his congregation in their own homes. Another Puritan, an Elizabethan uh, pastor, Richard Greenham, was convinced that beyond preaching, it was more a significant duty for a pastor to counsel those conscience who were troubled, who were distressed. So Greenham's approach for caring, uh, when caring for sinners was to confront them with sincerity, with gentleness, because he, he really wanted them to be brought back to the fold. And yet when he declared judgment, he did it with a sympathetic and prayerful heart. His ability to empathize with the sinners, relate with, with his, um, his ability to empathize, empathize with sinners relates with his personal practice of introspection. He examined and searched out his soul so that he, he's familiarized with himself and how sin affects his own heart. And through this, he actually had a solid grasp of human condition and is able to precisely assess the issues of the conscience. Richard Sibbs, who had an ability to probe a person's soul, gave some wise counsel to not go too far in pressing the conscience, lest they suffer extreme despair and dejection. So they, they thought bringing balm, uh, uh, um, uh, um, an antidote or a, um, a way to comfort those who have been driven to despair. So Sibs encouraged to extend love to those who are feeble, feeble even, to those, even to show sympathy and bear with their infirmities. So to summarize, the strengths of the pastors, truly, of the Puritans as pastors, preaching and pastoral care. That's the areas they shined in. But before I present any flaws or imperfections, observe upon the Puritans, a word of caution will be provided. I will give some word of caution. First, the following weak points of the Puritans does not mean it pertains to all Puritans without distinction. And to say, this would be my view of their weaknesses as Puritans. As some might, might defend what I think might be weakness. You might say, no, I, I think that's their strength. So just a little uh, preface to that. So as brilliant and piercing and robust the Puritans were in expositions and sermons, their sermons were not without flaws. The Puritans did promote and practice plain preaching so that individual hearers could hear the word, but there were occasions when they were displayed excessiveness with words. There was a glut, a glut of words. The Puritans were at times beyond concise for they tried to wring every drop of doctrine from a text that they remained with a passage for months and even years. Just listen to these examples. Uh, so Joseph Carroll um, wrote, um, wrote on Job, and has a 6,000 quarto pages. So just think of a page, yay big. Intersection goes this way and goes this way. So you got four areas. You fold it in half and fold it in half. That's a quarto. 6,000 of those bad boys was written on Job. Hildersam had preached 152 sermons on Psalm 51, 1 to 7. William Gurnall wrote 800 pages on the treatment of of, of the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Anthony Burgess, on John 17 alone, he preached 145. And Thomas Manton, 
190 sermons on Psalm 19. So just imagine just the, the, the words that they've, they've expounded in these texts. So the probable influence of the Puritans' lengthy, very complex, multi-level sermons was from a French Protestant philosopher in the 16th century named Peter Ramus. This remistic methodology, that's your other $10 word of the day, this remistic methodology of structuring or ordering sermons in a logical manner was actually intended to achieve clarity and memorability of a message. So as a result, the Puritans divided their, tech, their, uh, the Puritans divided their text with headings, subcategories, and even subpoints, subpoints. So it's not like a three-part sermon or a, a, a three, um, yeah, three-point sermon, excuse me, but they would have a three-point sermon with a two-point subpoints and a two-point subpoints underneath those subpoints. So it's just com- very complex, very um, methodological. But we must keep in mind, though, even with this, is that it's hard for you as a hearer to keep track. So that's the downside of this methodology. You get several layers of doctrine, several layers of categories, several layers of application cross-references, and that you actually lose track of where the text is. However, though, keeping in mind, if you go back to their context, this remistic method was probably a common educational style during the times of the Puritans. So it was a pattern of teaching that helped the, the preachers and helped the listeners. Nevertheless, Leland Riken, the, the, the fellow who wrote um, Worldly Saints, made a good point that the Puritans failed to calculate how much enough is said. So this methodology, this Puritan's tendency to categorize and itemize the particulars of a doctrine impacted actually what they taught. So this influence of remistic principles from this guy Peter, Peter Ramus was particularly seen in two, two Puritans that I will talk about today, Thomas Hooker and Thomas Shepard and the description of preparatory stages of salvation, sometimes known as preparationism or preparatory work. Essentially, this refers to the preaching of God's character and law to the sinners that they are convicted of their sin and guilt and they are driven to Christ by grace. But to be clear, the Puritans were far from teaching that sinners have the power and ability within themselves to come to Christ. But for Hooker and Shepherd, but for Hooker and Shepherd, they said that prior to coming to Christ, a sinner is required to have a particular and definite level of inner experience of humiliation and conviction. There's sort of this preciseness, this prescription that you have to reach this level. They conveyed the idea, even though they tried to provide um, disclaimers, that God humbles sinners in the same sequence of events. But if an individual does not experience every step, then the individual might think he must be a stranger to true grace. An even extreme teaching of Hooker and Shepherd that uh, Joel Beakey pointed out was for a sinner to be brought so low that he would be willing to be damned prior to receiving Christ. Now, that, that, that's um, treading um, grounds that we don't want to go. And the issue was not about if faith in Christ included self-humbling, but about the prescribed and enumerated degrees of, of contrition a sinner might have. So there's this preciseness. You have to reach this certain level before you could come to Christ. So this leads to a potential and concerning implication that sinners might 
experienced very intense doubt, very intense despair. So the sinner would start questioning continually, have I, have I done all the steps that they've counted? And if you don't, it would lead you to paralysis. You, you cannot decide. And what's even more saddening is that you're so demoralized that you don't even want to come to Christ. That's the downside of that. And another more dangerous implication would be if a sinner concluded he or she missed one of the steps, it may lead her to be so hopeless, so hopeless that ah, I can't come to Christ at all. So what this, what this leads to is that it shifts the eyes to yourself. Ah, excuse me, it shifts the eyes. Instead of Christ, it goes to yourself. You're looking at yourself too much. So in conclusion, persons as pastors were ordinary men who were used extraordinarily by God. The Puritans' pastors exemplified their, their forte, their strength in preaching. They esteemed the Bible as the source and authority of the message they preached. Their ability to bring God's word to people is unsurpassed. They instruct minds, probe consciences, and affect the hearts so that the hearers felt the weight of God's character. And at the same time, they could taste the sweetness of the gospel. That's a recurring theme in the Puritan writings. The Puritans were not merely preachers to their shepherds of the flock. By means of applying God's word into their own souls, they were effective in caring for the people under their care through personal visitations, catechism, counseling, and discipline. But as strong as the Puritans were in these areas, they were still men at best who had shortcomings of their own. The educational method during the time of the Puritans, again, going back to the remistic principles, it affected their style of teaching. Though their sermons were, were logical, clear, memorable, they tended to have long, drawn-out exposition with multi-layered categories and particulars. Moreover, it actually affected the understanding of theology, as some th- taught that each person must experience the exact same events in sequential order before they could come to Christ. Even in view of these examples of their weaknesses, though, it is outweighed by their superiority in preaching, their excellence in pastoral care, and seriousness to live holy lives. Um, with that, before we uh, field in some, some questions, I'll just like, try to um, bring in some, some applications, for, even for us, just to consider Puritans. Hopefully for you, if you're uh, one of those who are, oh, these Puritans are spiritual giants, you don't want to approach them. There's actually some, uh, I'll, I'll recommend some resources afterwards um, that you, you can tap into to slowly wade your, wade your um, feet in. But then you could go on the other extreme where you think so highly of the Puritans that they're like Puritans alone. I don't know if you remember back in Pastor Josh, we follow no man except Christ. These Puritans are just people like, like you and me. But, but, they're, but their biblical spirituality, their piety, is what should motivate us to have this daily communion with God. That when we read God's word, it is not a mind exercise alone, being informed, being, 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 being open, being wounded, but our actual hearts be affected. And that bleeds into our lives. And so I pray that that would be the case, even as we await for the preaching event later today, that we're expected to hear God's word and to, and to, to be actually communing with him. And so that's our, that's our, that's our hope.
Um, recommended resources, um, I have two here. Uh, the first one again, Leland Riken, Worldly Saints. Very, very helpful book. It, it deals with the, the caricatures, a little bit of history, and, and some of the, um, the Puritan distinctives. Another one, I'm not sure if this is in, the, in our bookstore, but this is J.A. Packer's A Quest for Godliness. It's a bit, a bit more heady, but it's definitely more, 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 more directed towards their, their biblical spirituality, the, 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 the goal of the Puritans to, to, for revival, for reformation. This would be a good resources. Another one, if you haven't attended the uh, conference, I think a while back with Dr. Stephen Yule, it'll be on our website. I think it's called Walking with the Giants. Just some conference talks that you could listen to there. But with all these secondary resources that I would commend you, the best thing is actually, actually read the Puritans. Actually read what they wrote. Some of you already read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. That's a good way to get, to get into the Puritans. Now, any of, any of Thomas Watson's book, very readable, very accessible, his doctrine of repentance, body of divinity. But with that, if you do want to read a, a Puritan firsthand, I would recommend or encourage you to pair it with this book called The Devoted Life by Kelly Capick and uh, Randall Gleason. This is sort of like a companion, sort of a guide that, that helps you as you read along because they actually delve into Puritan classics and help you understand what the Puritans were saying. So just some resources for you. And if you really want to go um, full, you could read A Puritan Theology, Doctrine for Life by Joel Beakey and, and Mark Jones. Very thick book if you're into reading. Very thick books. So I'll end there. Um, I'll try to field in some questions. And I'll be honest, I'll take it off. I'll take it offline or I'll field it to Pastor Clint if I can't answer them. <laughs> Alan? So for those who haven't heard, ah, excuse me, rephrase the question. The, uh, any comment on the views of the Puritans on slavery? I haven't read anything about that. <laughs> Pastor Clint would want to share.
contigo. Sure, we'll go with Alan again. I'll go with Josh. The one that I've read recently is um, actually John Bunyan's Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. I keep forgetting the text. I think it's John 6, 36 or 44. And it's just an exposition of that one verse, the, the vast openness of God's grace of welcoming sinners. And it's just an exposition of what it does not mean and what it is. And that's just been pretty helpful for me in just being reminded that his grace is more than my sins. Josh? So with that, even there, there's really no uh, consensus among the Puritans. In essence, when they wanted to reform society, they wanted to reform individual lives. They were so concerned for the personal salvation of people, and through that, people living a, a pious life, a life communing with God. And that's really how the Reformation Society. But other ones that I've, I've tried reading through the his history of it, they, other things include... Um, like the government, how, how the church relates to the state and things like that. There's actually many different views within the Puritans of should, should the state actually be in charge of how the church functions or should be the church should be uh, separate from it and then being able to um, um, follow biblical, biblical patterns, at least as far as I've, I've read. Sure, go ahead, Josh. At least in my reading, I don't, I haven't read anything about that. Um, I don't know if Pastor Clint would want to add to that. Mm. 
Okay, Frank. Outside of England, Ooh. I'm not sure about the geographic in that one. I, I haven't focused my energies in the 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 Puritans moving into New England as much, so I can't comment on that. Yet. Well, thank you for your time. Why don't I just close in a word of prayer and we'll have some time of fellowship afterwards. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are supreme over all. And yet, Lord, you look towards your children with such care and attention. You care for us, Lord. We thank you for that. Thank you even for your love for us that is so immense. Help us, Lord, to be reminded of that even with the cares and anxieties of this world. Even, Lord, as we prepare um, uh, our, our hearts, Lord, to, to receive a, your word, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, Lord, we do ask even by your spirit, give us the energy, even the perseverance to, to have our hearts be focused on you today, even our eyes lifted up, so that, Lord, we would see you, come to know you, even commune with you, with all the saints here today. And we do pray, Lord, even expectantly, that you would do such a deep work in our hearts, that our lives would be changed, and even carried out outside of this church doors. We thank you, Father, even for your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.